Welcome to Choate's Life Sciences Insights, a podcast series hosted by our intellectual property, litigation, and corporate attorneys, covering trending topics at the intersection of science and law. Today's discussion is one in a series of discussions among Choate lawyers about legal issues and clinical trial management. In this installment, we're focused on issues that can arise when there is a premature or mistaken public disclosure of sensitive clinical trial information, whether it be clinical trial data, product formulation information, or information about a product's mechanism of action. Joining me today for this conversation is Eric Marendet, co-chair of our Intellectual Property Litigation Group and a trusted advisor to a broad range of pharma companies, from those seeking to commercialize their first product to large multinational companies with extensive product and R&D portfolios. I'm Christine Savage, chair of the firm's healthcare practice, where I provide promotional compliance advice to life sciences companies and defend them in the face of civil and criminal investigations related to product promotion and healthcare provider interactions. Eric, to kick things off, let's do a little stage setting. Can you provide some examples from your own practice or things that you've heard of along the way of companies inadvertently releasing clinical trial information? Sure, and thanks, Christine, for the the setup. I would say that in the IP context, problems arise because there's an inherent tension between FDA and regulatory obligations and sometimes what corporate communication people want to say about ongoing clinical trials and development and the need to to adequately protect IP assets. And what can happen is key IP assets can be undermined or even destroyed altogether if a company does not maintain good hygiene in its disclosure practices. Examples of problems arise when you have things like scientists going out to conferences and giving updates about the status of clinical trials or ongoing development where they make statements that that don't seem public, but in, in fact are in a public setting. The more direct is when there's press releases about key technical data in circumstances where there hasn't previously been a prior patent filing. And then finally, inadequate confidentiality restrictions in disclosures of clinical trials, including, for example, when there are actual submissions to the FDA without taking appropriate steps in order to maintain confidentiality and without proper coordination with the IP team. So, Christine, turning it back to you, I I suspect in the compliance and regulatory arena, the considerations may be a little bit different. In my practice area, we tend to see inadvertent disclosures occur repeatedly in a couple of different contexts. One, where executives are participating in investor calls and feel boxed in and may say more than they intended to about the progress of a trial or a development program. Or sometimes we see investigators themselves sharing information uh, that's confidential, either at a scientific meeting, similar to what you discussed earlier, or with investment agencies. Yeah, and from an IP perspective, some of the business and legal concerns that you have to worry about is is exactly in those circumstances when information gets out too soon or with too much detail in in circumstances where it wasn't expected. And, And just, again, to step back and talk about the types of problems, things like method of treatment, formulations, dosing regimens, Those types of things that are commonly disclosed in the course of presentations about clinical development and in regulatory submissions often turn into critical IP assets that will have life well beyond core composition of matter patents. And as a result, it's really important to get IP filings in before there's any disclosure about those things. 
But yet, yeah, details about those types of inventions are the very things that are required to be submitted to regulatory agencies. And regulatory filings often are publicly accessible unless particular steps have been taken to ensure their confidentiality. As a result, they can serve as invalidating prior art if they predate patent filings. And then on top of that, they can create enforceability problems if, for example, there are publications or regulatory submissions that are then not disclosed to the patent office during the later process of procuring patents. So you can create problems both from an enforceability standpoint and from a validity perspective. And finally, you can create freedom to operate risk as well because public statements about how you administer drugs or what the steps in dosing are can then form the basis of, for infringement actions asserted by other parties against you. In other words, they have patents that arguably protect those steps. They look to your public statements, both in regulatory filings and or publications in order to demonstrate infringement. So not maintaining proper hygiene in these public disclosures can create problems on both ends. Now, Christine, let me pitch it back to you to talk about some of the most significant consequences that folks in the regulatory sphere face. Sure, there's a, a few significant areas of concern. Um, first, and, and principally that a government regulator, and that could be the FDA, or it could be the Department of Justice, if they believe that the release of information wasn't in fact a mistake, uh, but rather a calculated decision to get information out that might benefit the company financially. So for example, we worry that FDA might conclude the company was trying to seed the market for an investigational product or unlawfully promote a marketed product for an off-label use in order to drive higher revenues. A second area of concern would relate to statements that are made by third parties, including marketing or public relations agencies, uh, investigators or key opinion leaders who aren't authorized to independently release information about the company's clinical trials, uh, but who clearly hold company confidential information. Um, Obviously, the substance of what those individuals say is of concern, but there's also the added concern that a regulator would take the view that the company wanted those individuals to leak information and that any payments we may have made to those individuals are somehow corrupt. And then I guess lastly, you know, we would be concerned about any statements that could be construed as misrepresenting the safety or efficacy of a product. Obviously, safety is the name of the game with the FDA, and those are the types of statements that might cause the government to initiate significant investigation of a company and has the likelihood of creating long-term reputational damage for the company as well. So maybe shifting a bit from your role as a litigator, Eric, to your role as a proactive counselor, what do you do to advise your clients on how to avoid the business or IP risks that you've talked about? Yeah, I would say the most important thing, um, and, and this is because this is the thing that gives rise to the most problems, is to set up careful and comprehensive internal communication protocols. In, in other words, make sure that the IP team is in the loop before there are any public disclosures of regulatory filings or before there are corporate communication statements about the status of clinical trials or, or ongoing preclinical development. Where there are problems is usually where there's been inadequate internal communication so that something happened and was disclosed without having the IP people in the loop and therefore without the IP people having the ability to make filings at an appropriate time or give advice around what can and can't be said publicly at a given point in time. A second thing that should be done is the company should be rigorous in, in implementing in appropriate circumstances, NDAs and other confidentiality restrictions. For example, with clinical investigators, you wanna have confidentiality obligations in place. 
likewise with collaborators and even with patient participants in clinical trials where that's possible because having those agreements in place will give you protections when something is later argued to be publicly available in an IP context. And then finally, just be very disciplined about when the company makes public disclosures. Make sure both the IP people and, and as I'm sure Christine's going to say, the, the regulatory people um, and compliance people are vetting abstracts and papers and public statements before they happen. Make sure the scientists and even more importantly, the senior executives understand the implications of public statements they may make in various contexts. And then finally, on the regulatory side, make sure the regulatory team before they're speaking with the FDA or other regulatory agents really understands IP concerns and talks with the IP team. And, and when there's that appropriate communication, usually you can head off problems. Now, Christina, I suspect there's some other practices that you've encouraged your clients to consider. You want, you want to elaborate on that a bit? Uh, there are, you know, a few relatively simple things that we have suggested to clients over the years. And, you know, you mentioned already the importance of implementing strict NDAs where appropriate with a variety of individuals, you know, investigators, advisory board members, key opinion leaders. Uh, we typically recommend that there be educational sessions that go along with those agreements to make sure that each of those individuals understands the NDA provisions as opposed to just reads an agreement and signs it. And from time to time, depending on the importance of what's happening with a development program, we may suggest to the company that they issue periodic reminders or even recertifications on certain commitments to key individuals. The, the second thing that we've recommended is actually monitoring investor reports, setting up Google alerts for some of the key individuals who may be inclined or being paid um, unbeknownst to the company to make statements about the product or clinical trial programs and, and frankly having SOPs in place to help design corrective action steps uh, when inappropriate statements are made. And we've helped guide clients through these situations and we've issued cease and desist letters, We've terminated contracts or suggested cooling off periods where you don't work with a particular physician or agency for some period of time. In more extreme situations, you may replace an investigator or consider whether a self-disclosure to a government agency or to the public is necessary in order to address any safety or efficacy concerns. So, so in conclusion, I would just say, hopefully, just by being aware of these issues, our listeners will avoid some of the most severe consequences that we've talked about today. And, and we also hope that this conversation has provided at least some things to think about and some strategies that will help our clients and others minimize the likelihood of encountering these kinds of problems. Well, thanks, Eric, for the discussion. Hopefully we have provided some items of value to those who've listened. And we want to thank everyone for joining us for this installment of Issues in Clinical Trials, or as I like to think of it, Trials Without Tribulations. For more information, please visit www.choat.com. You can also listen to additional podcast episodes in the newsroom of our website and subscribe to them wherever you listen to podcasts, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. The information presented in this recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice for a specific situation. If you wish to obtain legal advice, you should retain an attorney and explain the facts of your particular situation.